You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello and welcome to another episode of Women's Health Interrupted. I'm Sarah Willis-Craft. And I'm Chevy Mehra. Today we are going to be discussing the exclusion of women from research with Amanda Namchuk and Talon Splinter. Amanda Namchuk is a second year PhD student in neuroscience at UBC studying chronic stress and the cognitive symptoms of depression. Talon Splinter recently completed her Bachelor of Science in Biology at UBC and is interested in studying the sex differences in brain health, genetics, and women's health. Both Amanda and Talon are part of the Sex and Gender-Based Analysis Research Team from the Women's Health Research Cluster. They recently co-authored a paper evaluating the integration of sex and gender-based analysis in projects funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research from 2009 to 2020. Today, we'll be discussing some of their results. Thank you so much, Amanda and Talon, for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We are so looking forward to discussing this important topic with you. So in this episode, we are going to be using the terms sex and gender a lot. For those of us who aren't as familiar with the difference between these terms, could you define them for us? Sure. So sex is a biological variable that includes things like sex chromosomes, sex hormones, and anatomy. And so when we refer to sex and sex differences in research, we're talking about males, females, and intersex individuals. And then gender is more of a social construct that includes gender identity. So whether someone identifies as a man, woman, non-binary, et cetera, any gender identity, and the societal expectations that come with that gender identity, things like gender roles in the home and workplace. It's also important to note that the definitions I just gave are from a very Western perspective, and they vary significantly with language and culture. So obviously, gender roles will be different from culture to culture, but even when it comes to language, some languages, especially in the East, don't even have different terms for sex and gender. So in a Canadian research context and throughout our conversation today, This is how we'll be using the term sex and gender, but just keep in mind that they can vary. And both of you have been involved in research that explores how well scientists have integrated sex and gender variables into their research. Uh, And before we dig into those findings, why is this work needed in the first place? Um, Well, first of all, it's important that historically women have been excluded from scientific research. And actually, in the late 1970s, they were premenopausal women were actively banned from participating in clinical drug trials in the United States. And it wasn't until years later, and around the late 1990s, that females were introduced back into clinical health trials in both the States and in Canada. So within those years, we lost decades of research in females, which leads to a lack of understanding in women's health and sex differences in general. So through this, we also know that sex differences in many diseases exists, For example, in terms of both symptomology, so symptoms between men and women for the same disease will differ, and also in things such as drug efficacy. So some drugs will work different in men and women. So an example 
includes Tylenol or acetaminophen, which is an active ingredient in Tylenol. So men and women are still being recommended the same dose, even though women are known to break down the drug 60% slower than men. So women are having this drug in their body for much longer and at much higher doses than men. So we don't really know what that's doing to women and what also that's doing to men. And we also know that females demonstrate poorer health outcomes and diseases. So for example, in cardiovascular disease, females have worse health outcomes and a greater risk of death compared to males, even though they have a higher chance of getting cardiovascular disease. So it's important to not only study these differences, but also to study the sex and gender differences within these diseases so that health outcomes can improve for both women and men, and we can have more of a precision medicine approach. And also in recent years, funding agencies such as the Canadian Institute for Health Research, CIHR, and the National Institute of Health, or NIH in the States, have come out with mandates to try to address some of these issues. So there's the sex and gender-based analysis um, or SGBA that came out in 2010 for Canada. And there's the um, sex as a biological variable, SABV, that came out in 2016 for NIH. However, along with these, there is still a long way to go to reach equality. And we really need to be doing more research into the sex differences in order to start correcting for these inequalities that we see within diseases. You know, I'm surprised to hear that women were intentionally excluded from clinical trials in the past, from what you mentioned earlier. Is this still true today? Well, yes and no. So actually, as I said before, in the late 1970s in the United States, all premenopausal women, so that's all women up until the age of around 30 to like 60, were actively banned from participating in drug trials. And it wasn't until 1993 that the National Institute of Health in the States mandated the inclusion of females. So it took up until 1993 for them to actively say you have to include females. And similarly, it wasn't until 1997 in Canada that the Canadian Institute of Health Research released a document recommending the inclusion of females. But still in Canada in 2022, it's only a recommendation and not mandatory for women to be in trials in Canada. So scientific research currently operates under the assumption that there are not any sex or gender differences in scientific research. Why do you think that assumption is problematic? Well, if we are working under the assumption that there's no sex differences, we won't end up finding any differences in sex. And then we won't have very effective treatments or medication for either sexes. And even if there are no sex differences, that's okay. And that's important to note, because then we can go doing as people are doing where you're using them together. That's fine. It's important to note. But if we're not looking for sex differences, you're not going to find them. And it's important to define them to create that precision medicine and to have actually proper dosing for drugs and proper treatments and proper symptoms for different sexes. Yeah, Talon, that's a great point. And the only thing that I would add is that working under the assumption that there are no sex differences will just continue to disproportionately harm women and females in this case, because like you said earlier, we are decades behind on women's health research compared to male health research. And how do these policies impact the inclusion of women in research? Well, I was a part of a paper that came out last year in Nature Communications that looked into this, and we looked at neuroscience and psychiatry publications in 2009 and 2019, and we found that male-specific research still really dominates compared to female research. 
So in 2019, 27% of publications were conducted in male-specific research, and only 3% was done in female-specific research. So that's nine times more studies in males compared to females. And on top of that, we found that only about half or 53% of these neuroscience and psychiatry studies use both males and females in their study design. So only half use both sexes. And of that 53%, 60% of them didn't report any sort of um, analysis by sex, not even controlling for sex. So while we know that maybe more researchers are using both sexes over the years, they're not analyzing or even attempting to look for sex differences. So we are really losing out on the that potential for new discovery and potentially new effective treatments between the sexes if we're not actually even looking for them. And we found similar results in our most recent paper with the Women's Health Research Cluster 2. So for this one, we were looking at um, CIHR funded health research. So just in Canada from 2009 to 2020. And we found that less than 10% of grants go towards sex differences, gender differences, female-specific health and or two-spirit or, or LGBTQIA plus health combined. So we're talking 91% of research was not focused or optimally designed to look at sex differences or gender differences or the health of these marginalized populations. This figure, the, the less than 10%, did go up a bit from 2009 to 2020, but still with all these new mandates and the policy changes that we talked about earlier within that 2009 to 2020 period, 10% is still like pretty low. It's pretty surprising. I think we can both say that we were pretty disappointed to find that it hadn't improved very much over that time period, especially with all of the new conversation. And there's, there's a lot of enthusiasm around increasing research for these populations and the SGBA mandates and the SABV mandates, but it turns out they haven't really made that big of an impact. And so for women specifically, we did find that sex differences grants did increase over time, but only by 1.5%. And that's still like in the 2%, 3% range. Still I want to say, I can't low. remember. It's still very low, but female specific and gender differences research did not increase at all in that period. So like Talon said, women's health research is slowly inching forward, but it's really still way too slow. And we haven't seen the policy changes by the Canadian government and CIHR make that big of a difference. I have a follow-up question, Amanda. You explain the statistical numbers of the exclusion of women from research. Could you also elaborate how that impacts historically understood populations like to us LGBTQIA plus community? So any marginalized group that's been excluded from health research is going to suffer because of our lack of knowledge of the ways in which, for example, with the 2S LGBTQIA community, the ways that gender and societal expectations of gender negatively impact their health or something like a lack of gender affirming health care um, impacts their health. And so, for example, if you think back to the AIDS epidemic, when gay men were largely being blamed for this terrifying disease that we didn't know anything about, while we're not still blaming gay men directly for health issues that impact them, we are still failing to help them achieve health in the same way that we would straight men because we don't study 
that population specifically. The figure that we found in our most recent paper was less than 1% of grants and less than 1% of funding dollars going towards any project seeking to study health within the 2SLGBTQIA community. And so if we want to stop leaving this group of people behind, we have to put time, effort, and money into understanding health in that context. While we're no longer blaming gay men for spreading AIDS, we are still discriminating against the 2SLGBTQIA community in a healthcare setting, um, whether that's a lack of gender-affirming care or just discrimination and really what can be traumatic experiences because of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And having a bad experience seeking healthcare can lead to poor healthcare outcomes as people will start to delay care. Um, I mean, if you, you can imagine going to the doctor, if it's a horrible experience every time, you're not going to go until it's really dire. And so it's easier to treat something earlier on in its progression. And so obviously delaying care can just end up being detrimental to health in general. And we see this a lot in the 2SLGBTQIA community. Something else that just came to mind is that in 2019, sex and gender-based analysis became a criterion for evaluating the grant applications that come in. So how well you integrate sex and gender-based analysis into your study design and how well you talk about discovering sex differences or gender differences in your grant proposal can actually harm or help your proposal now, which wasn't exactly how it worked before, even though CIHR was trying to encourage this. That's kind of a material way that is a bigger incentive probably to researchers because it can actually harm or help, like I said, their chances of getting money to do the research. So that's kind of one way that CIHR has nudged people. But even between 2019 and 2020, where you would expect to see this incentive go into effect, we saw decreases in a lot of these categories or just a lack of increase. So CIHR requiring and continuing to further incentivize the integration of SGBA has not really changed the way that researchers are proposing to do their research. You know, some of the low statistical numbers and also what you mentioned about the implementation of criteria when it comes to sex and gender in grant applications really are telling, you know, in the way that we still have a long way to go. And, you know, I'm just curious, what would you say are some steps that we can take to ensure that sex and gender is properly incorporated into and analyzed within scientific research? I think in some ways, it's kind of like climate change. So on an individual level, the choices that we make, of course, matter but it's really the big institutions that are going to be able to make the biggest difference. So CIHR and other funding bodies probably have a big, if not biggest, role to play in this because they get to decide who does the research and who's getting the money to do research on health. And so by extension, they get to decide the populations that are being researched. And so CIHR, although they're trying, like they're introducing new policies and mandates, they maybe need to set aside particular pots of money for specifically studying sex differences or specifically for studying female health and really use money as a bigger incentive because researchers will follow the money. Like they're tied to the money. They can't do the research if they don't have the money. So that's one thing that could make a difference. Journals also play a role in this because obviously 
the funding body is what gets the research started, but publishing is academic currency. So they get to decide whose research gets published. They get to decide which re results are disseminated. And so they can choose to have really stringent criteria for the type of research that's published and the minimum requirements for incorporating sex and gender-based analysis. So some journals are starting to do this. The Nature Family, for example, they have a new requirement where you have to justify why or why not you used sex or gender variables in your research. And then in the title and or abstract of your research, if you want to publish it in a nature journal, you have to disclose your findings in a sex and gender sensitive manner, I guess. Like you have to say, we found this in males and we found this in females, or we found this in men and we found this in women. So if more journals follow suit, that could be really powerful. And so, like I said, Individual actions can only do so much, but it doesn't mean they're not worth doing. So as individual researchers or people just interested in science, you can take steps to educate yourself on the importance of incorporating sex and gender-based analysis. The Women's Health Research Cluster, for example, has how to SGBA workshops, um, which are really helpful. And um, you can also just kind of practice framing your own research or the way that you talk about science through a sex and gender sensitive lens, I guess. So like, we really just need to start reframing the research conversation um, to where using sex and gender as variables in your research is the norm. And also just to add to that, one thing that the researchers can do, like at the very least, is just report what sex is they're using. Because we also found that some very high percentage don't actually report if they're using males or females in their study. So Which just, is insane. Yeah. Just report if you're using males, report if you're using females, report just anything. And then at the very least, you can control for sex or analyze them separately. Like that's not the best, but it's better than nothing. And it's a way to start. I think something else that keeps people from doing sex differences research properly is also the fear that it means you'll have to double your sample size or it be becomes too complicated to deal with your results if you find something different between female and male animals, for example, and then you have two different leads to pursue. And it's a lot easier if you just use only male animals so that you just don't have to be doing extra work. Like what's the point in doing health research if it's only going to be relevant to half the population? And like at this point, we'd still lack a lot of knowledge about sex differences, but we know too much about how badly it works to try to generalize findings from males to females or from men to women. So I think that's kind of up to individual researchers to decide. But then also that's where funding comes in too, because you don't actually have to double your N if you do like a proper power analysis and the good study design is a big part of this, but it does use more animals if you're including sex as a variable. And so when you're asking for money from CIHR, that has to be taken into account on both ends, the researcher and the funding body. Thank you so much, Amanda and Talon, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca.
If you liked the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts on to be notified when new episodes drop every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into the resources we talked about today. We also have other exciting women's health research being shared on our women's health blog and through events like the Women's Health Seminar Series. So make sure to head over to our website at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca to learn more. Until next time, I'm Chavi Mehra. And I'm Sarah Williscraft. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 